This is not the media. This is hell. We are currently facing two crises, not just here on This Is Hell, but, you know, all of us. Crises of epic proportions, both threatening the existence of thousands nearly every day. First, there was already climate change that was having a direct impact on millions of lives, destroying farmlands, displacing those fleeing rising temperatures and sea levels, turning them into climate change refugees. And if that wasn't bad enough, a virus traveled from animals to humans, the pathogen caused an outbreak, and the world suddenly had a global pandemic to go along with climate change. And the combination is deadly. Yet somehow, we keep telling ourselves that if we can just go back to normal, pre-virus, everything will be just fine. Problem is, nobody's invented a time machine yet, and without one, we cannot experience the past again. That normal is a thing of the past, it's history. As for the future, well, it's going to get even worse. Climate change will continue to heat up the planet and change it in ways that will be devastating to humanity, releasing viruses and even more pandemics as we all quarantine over and over and over again to protect ourselves from diseases and the weather. It's not a pretty picture. It's actually incredibly bleak. But unless we do something about it and fast, and that means confronting our system of exploitation that inevitably leads to a very few wealthy people living in luxury while the rest of the world and its inhabitants, you know, people like you and me, burn. We are very excited to have as today's guest, writer for print media, television, theater, and opera, Fabian Scheidler, author of The End of the Mega Machine, a Brief History of Failing Civilizations. You can find out more about the end of the Mega Machine at megamachine.org. There's an English version of the site if you just put slash E-N after that. In 2009, Fabian co-founded the independent newscast Context TV, which has since produced over 100 broadcasts on global justice issues. Context TV is an independent news magazine and provides ba background information on pressing current issues such as social justice, climate, war, and peace. You can find out more about Context TV at context-tv.de. That's context in German, so it's, it starts the K. Context.tv-de. Again, their English language version of that site is at slash en. You can follow Context TV on Twitter at Context TV. For the Global Justice Network attack and an international movement working towards social, environmental, and democratic alternatives in the globalization process, Fabian edited the fake edition of the German weekly Die Zeit in 2009, which generated nationwide attention in Germany. For his work, he received the Otto Brenner Media Award for Critical Journalism in 2010. Fabian served as the project coordinator for the attack tribunal on banks at the Volksbühne in Berlin. Find out more about Attack at attac.org. In 2013, Fabian's opera, Death of a Banker, premiered at the Gerhard Altmann Theater in Gorlitz, Germany. Fabian is also the author of Chaos, The New Age of Revolutions, and in 2019, he co-edited The Struggle for Global Justice, which included interviews with past guests on our show like Noam Chomsky, Emmanuel Wallerstein, Vandana Shiva. Fabian also writes for Blatter für Deutsche und Internationale Politik, which is edited by another past guest on our show, Saskia Assassin. That's why I was giving you such a long bio on Fabian, because he has had so many connections with past guests on our show and has quite a unique past. Find out more about Fabian at Fabian Scheidler. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed live stream podcast radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? Good morning, sir. I'm fine. So, uh, how's uh, life been around your neighborhood? Very exciting? Uh, it's No, I mean, it's about the same as always. Uh, not, not as much uh, excitement as I hear you have in your neighborhood. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> uh, I have been having a lot of difficulty sleeping. And uh, lately I changed whatever pills I'm taking to try to help me sleep. And so last night I was getting a pretty good sleep. And then at 3.04 in the morning, I awoke to rapid fire gunshots. There had to be at least eight of them. And it woke up me and my girly. And my girly said, she goes, what was that? And she said that all I said was, gunfire, go to sleep. Uh, well. So I don't know what's going on in my neighborhood, but we live re- real near a whole bunch of cops. You'd think they'd be on this, but I don't know, man. I think they're all just up in Copland, protecting Copland. So you're not getting more gunshots in your neighborhood no, with the virus? It's, it's about the same, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a pretty consistent no. gang presence then? No, it's it's, it's actually a pretty nice little uh, area. It's kind of, I mean, I'm not saying it's isolated at all, but it's a little bit you know, a, a weird little section because it's, I live in a sort of a triangle. I'm like right by uh, um, Grand Avenue. So, right. so it's where, you know, it's a diagonal street. So it kind of cuts off things and there's an elementary school near me and it's kind of a light industrial area. So I don't know. So it's a little bit secluded, secluded, I guess, you know, not, not so bad. I mean, there's stuff around and, you know, just a couple blocks of me, south of me is division, and anything south of there is a little sketchy sometimes. Right. But I don't know. It's not. It's it's certainly improved over the last twenty years that I've lived there. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. Because people I've talked to uh, have been living in this neighborhood now for seventeen years. People have told me that uh, the neighborhood is this neighborhood has gotten a lot worse. And I'm telling you, man. If, if you think this is worse than it was in 2003, you're, you're kidding yourself because this is not as bad as it was. In 2003, I used to have to walk through gauntlets of gangbangers standing on this uh, sidewalk who would, like, taunt me and challenge me to see if I would actually walk through them. So right. I, I don't have to do that anymore, you know? I don't know. Anyway. Good times. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Wait a second. What is today's question? Oh, yeah. This week's question from hell is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Again, this week's question from hell is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to me at chuck at com or alex at com. But you have to send your responses in by the end of show Thursday. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing our favorite and who wins the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap. Richard will be telling us how you are answering this week's question mail following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at com, alex at com, Facebook it, message it to blah 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 direct message it to to us via twitter whatever but just do it by the end of thursday's live show 
putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever the hell this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time, with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. If you subscribe now, you get access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like another year of This Is Hell. On last Friday's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers, we did not share an interview we did with William T. Volman, as listener Jason suggested. That's because we cannot find an interview with William T. Volman, and that interview may only exist in my imagination. So yeah, Jason, we got to get William T. Volman on the show. Instead, as our planet is on fire, We thought we'd share an interview from way back on July 7th, 2002, when we spoke with Jeff Kessler of Wyoming's Biodiversity Conservation Alliance. Jeff explained his group's opposition to timber cutting as a form of fire prevention and the impact of logging activities on the environment, including the concept that profit-seeking timber cutting actually causes forest fires, which you are not going to hear in any of the coverage of the wildfires that are taking place right now. Meanwhile, look closely at a Trump-Pence sign surrounded by spotlights, security cameras, warnings, private property legalese, and what the sign maker described as an electic fence. And what I saw when I looked real close was the pointlessness of political signage and the ugliness of my own political bias. But the only way you can hear about the electic fence fence and the election sign wars happening in small town and suburban America and a completely different view of the wildfires is by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Real quick, uh, on yesterday's show, we were speaking with political analyst and columnist at the SADA Journal of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website as well as the writer for the Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column for Open Democracy, Meged Mandur. Meged talked with us about his recent writing, couple of columns, Sisi's <laughs> War on the Poor and the Capitalist Roots of Egyptian Authoritarianism. And I asked why we never see any news coverage here in the states of Egypt, especially on the mainstream TV news or any of the cable news outlets, which run news 24-7. You'd figure you'd see something about Egypt. You constantly see it on France 24 and Deutsche Welle and BBC. Why don't we see anything about it here in the States? Why don't we hear about the military dictatorship the U.S. supports in Egypt and the suffering of the Egyptian people at the hands of that dictatorship? And why do we hear so much about Belarus, for example? I know it's not a very good example as a parallel, but, you know, why do we hear so much about Belarus instead of Egypt. Megid said that it was because Egypt is an ally of the United States, so whatever abuses Egypt may be committing are ignored. Meanwhile, Belarus is not an ally. That made me blurt out an idea. That idea was propaganda by omission. And was that ever on display last night? Wow. When ABC, CBS, and NBC covered the story of President Trump's financial records and how little he paid in taxes, not one network pointed out what that radical communist Senator Elizabeth Warren mentioned, and that is, quoting Warren, nobody used this quote. Warren said, Donald Trump is a liar, a cheater, and a crooked businessman. Yes, but he's also taking advantage of a broken, corrupt, and unequal system that's built for people like him to do what he did. 
The propaganda by omission machine was working again, working overtime, as the mainstream media ignored the most important part of the story, which is rich people and corporations do not pay taxes. Instead, the establishment media only saw Trump and nothing more. All of the other wealthy people, you know, like their employers, who can use all those loopholes by paying attorneys and accountants huge sums of money to hide their other huge sums of money, the kind of help the non-wealthy cannot afford. The complete unfairness and inequality of the system was never mentioned because that is propaganda by omission. Only focus on the individual act and not the systemic issues. Yes, Trump should have paid his taxes, as should all the allegedly uber-wealthy and their corporations. Remember when we found out about the Panama Papers and how the rich have been hiding their money all over the globe so they don't have to pay taxes? Yeah, whatever happened to that? Anything ever come of that? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember. The reporter who broke the story, Daphne Carana Galicia, was assassinated by a car bomb in Malta. And the rich were allowed to continue hiding their money wherever they damn well please. And we never heard another word about the Panama Papers again. The papers that we all thought we were all being told in the media would finally end the kinds of tax havens and shell games in which only the wealthy and most corrupt have accessed. We are not kidding when we say this is hell coming up. If you think it's bad now with climate change and the pandemic, it's going to get worse, a lot worse, unless we do something about stopping these processes that are causing, that are happening so fast and doubling up on us. Richard will have more of, or will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black. This is hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but you must have your response in by the end of show Thursday when we announce this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The world is now facing multiple crises that threaten our very existence, so why the hell is the stock market doing so well? Why does it seem like nothing can stop the Dow Jones, NASDAQ, S&P from going up when we are all being threatened by climate change and now a pandemic as well? What is it that keeps the system of rapacious profit-seeking going, even in the face of what can look apocalyptic? Here to help us understand why whatever this is won't stop, even when destroying the planet, Fabian Scheidler, who is author of The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. You can find out more about Fabian at FabianScheidler.com. Fabian, welcome to This Is Hell. Yeah, hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Fabian is also author of Chaos, the New Age of Revolutions, and in 2019, he co-edited The Struggle for Global Justice, which included interviews with past guests on our show, including Noam Chomsky, Emmanuel Wallerstein, uh, Vandana Shiva, and he uh, he also has worked with uh, Saskia Sassen, another past guest on our show, who's the editor of a newsletter at which he works. You can find out more about Fabian again at FabianScheidler.com. You write that a few days after the inauguration of U.S. President Donald 
Donald Trump in 2017, two things happened simultaneously. For the first time in its history, the Dow Jones Index reached the threshold of 20,000 points to the frenetic cheers of traders and stockholders. At the same time, the hands of the so-called doomsday clock advanced to two and a half minutes before midnight. This was the closest it had come since... 1953, after the first hydrogen bombs had been detonated, the ecstasy of the stockholders and the approaching midnight of humanity, the fact that our current economic system is on a collision course of the earth and its inhabitants could hardly be expressed more clearly. The cheers at the stock exchange are for our doom. Can there ever be cheers at the stock market without our doom happening outside of the stock market? Can there be cheers at the stock exchange while outside on the streets, we hear cheers of liberation. No, I think that's impossible in the long run. In the short run, many things are possible. But we have to understand that 500 years ago in Europe, a system was created which was radically new in human history. And it's based on the endless accumulation of capital, which is institutionalized in institutions like corporations and so on, but also in states and many other institutions. And this system has only one goal, which is to increase the money of the shareholders, uh, even at the cost of a planet which uh, goes bust. And uh, the thing is that the system has to grow, it has to expand eternally, it cannot stop, because uh, once the money is invested, there must be more coming out, otherwise we have a financial crisis, we have an economic crisis. So we cannot stop overproducing, and we know that the planet has uh, reached, or we have reached with this economic system, the, uh, the limits of the planet. It's not only climate change, it's not only about exchanging fossil fuels against renewables. It's also about soils. We lose 1% of fertile land due to industrial agriculture every year and other factors. We lose our fresh water resources. Uh, we have produced uh, the biggest species extinction for the last 65 million years. The d dinosaurs were wiped out then. There were five big species extinctions in the history of the planet, and this is the sixth one. And this uh, would happen also without climate change because of the economic system that has to expand forever. And by the way, uh, pandemics are also uh, a consequence of this economic expansion because we destroy natural habitats of wild animals and those wild animals come into human settlements and by the excrements we get those viruses and so on. So it's, it's a machine that has been created 500 years ago that has to expand forever and this is not, not compatible with a limited planet. We are speaking with writer for print media, television, theater and opera Fabian Scheidler, author of The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. You can find out more about The End of the Mega Machine at megamachine.org. That's Mega Machine in German, so there's an S before the C. And you can follow, find the English version by putting a slash E-N at the end of that, if you're following it all along at home. So uh, when in one of the things that you write about uh, capitalism 500 years ago is the rise of capitalism happening at a time when uh, the world was very egalitarian. Is capitalism then an uprising against egalitarianism, an uprising against equality? And if it is, how do we view capitalism differently when we understand it as an uprising against egalitarianism? 
Yes, the, the time when the um, capitalist system was created or the first preliminary systems, if you will, was not an egalitarian period, of course. It was the late Middle Ages, the 14th, the 15th century. and uh, But there were... Uh, very strong egalitarian movements which opposed uh, the uh, riches of the clergy, the riches of the merchants like in uh, Venice, in Florence, in Genoa, all over Europe there were huge uprisings and they were sometimes successful. Peasants uh, uh, even uh, uh, reached the Tower of London, uh, they uh, um, occupied the city of Florence and many, many other places. So there was really a fear of the elites. Uh, that they lose their privileges at that time. And the way to crush these movements was, of course, to build up a strong military. But that was very difficult for the sovereigns in that period because they didn't have money. And um, you needed a lot of money to buy the firearms that you needed and to buy mercenaries. Firearms and mercenaries played a crucial role in the emergence of capitalism. And the, the sovereigns needed the bankers and the merchants of that time to get the money. And the merchants on their part and the bankers, they lent the money to the states so the states could first crush egalitarian movements and to save the privileges of the merchants. And secondly, they could be sent to war then to plunder other parts of the world, other countries. And from this looting, they could pay the return on investment to the bankers in Genoa in Florence and in other places. So it was a business model. War was a business model and it was also the first big um, uh, area where um, wage labor was employed. The mercenary was the most important wage labor in the early capitalist time. And uh, so the war, war machine and capitalism emerged simulta simultaneously. The modern state and the institutions of capital accumulation emerged at the same time, and they crushed very effectively egalitarian movements. Uh, of course, they came back in the long run, the French Revolution and other revolutions. So uh, it's, uh, but the neoliberal revolution, if you will, or counter-revolution since the 70s and 80s was also another phase of this system because in the Northern Hemisphere, certain kind of more egalitarian um, uh, um, conditions were created. They were not really egalitarian, but workers make, made progresses. And so there was an, an attempt to set back these progresses and it was very successful. So we are back in the late 19th, early 20th century now socially. But of course, we are at a different point in history because the system is crushing the planet. You also mentioned the time of having a welfare state in like the 1930s, in the middle part of the 20th century in uh, the Western world, if you will. Here in the United States, when we had far more social services, we were going through the process of the New Deal. You say that that's just an intermezzo. It's almost like an anomaly. While uh, each end of, if you look at beforehand or afterward, it becomes far more of a rapacious, neoliberal, capitalist kind of state. So... Instead of asking you why did we change to what we are today, why did we have that intermezzo? What has to happen in order for us to again have the fertile environment for a welfare state? Well, the, the New Deal was in fact the result of very long struggles. 
which started even before the French Revolution and also in the United States, of course, there was a long, long history of struggles of workers, of uh, anti-slavery struggles, of uh, women's struggles and so on. I mean, if you look at the American Constitution, it uh, didn't grant uh, any rights of vote um, to uh, um, people of color, to black people, to women, to poor people. So it was not really a democracy, as James Madison, the main author of the Constitution, said, we want a republic where the, the people in power are, can keep uh, uh, the people, um, the larger population at bay. And uh, so it was all these movements which created a situation um, in, in which progress could be made, in, in which wages could get better, welfare state was built. And uh, I think the last 200 years saw a lot of social progress and it goes a little forward and then it goes backward, but, but it never goes as much backward as it went forward. Um, and so I see there's a history of social progress which has been which was very hard to reach, and many people died in the process. It was over centuries. Um, but the problem is that we have to um, change, in a way, these struggles in a direction that we uh, advance workers' rights, we advance social progress, but not within the paradigm of expansion and growth, because the ecological situation um, forces us to switch to an economy which uh, um, allows a better life with less production because we have huge overproduction that's the core of the ecological crisis. So that's the real challenge now to combine social progress with uh, really overcoming the capitalist growth paradigm. And there are signs that this could happen, but it will be a long struggle and uh, we don't have that much time because climate change is uh, going on very fast. We have 10 to 15 years to really change the energy system at least and uh, the economic system of course will take much longer. You write that at heart, everyone realizes how destructive the system is, that it is sick and also makes us sick. In Germany, for example, 88% of those surveyed would prefer some other economic system. Likewise, in Great Britain and the USA, approval of the capitalist economic system is rapidly dwindling, especially among the younger generation. Long gone are the days of market euphoria and an enthusiastic belief in progress. If those days are long gone, then why doesn't it seem that way? Why do we still have a very high likelihood that whoever wins November's U.S. presidential election very will be very much part of the capitalist class, still filled with market euphoria and the belief that either the market or some sort of public-private partnership will save us? And if it's not the market, it will be soon some upcoming technology that can save us either from climate change or a scientific advancement like a vaccine can get us back to what the media insists was normal. If we don't like where we are going and how we are getting there, why does it seem like the powers that be who supposedly represent us are staying the same pro-market capitalist course? Well, the thing is that there's not only physical violence in the system, police violence, military violence, and not only structural violence like in property relations, uh, but there's also ideological power. And if you have a look at the media system, of course, when you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign, the way it was covered and the way uh, the Biden campaign and Trump were covered, then you see that just in, in terms of um, 
uh, of time. It was in the 2016 election. It was really a Bernie Sanders blackout. It's known to be a blackout. Even there was a situation when Donald Trump was not appearing on stage, but the cameras of all the big uh, media outlets were on the empty stage while Bernie Sanders was speaking, I don't know, before 40,000 people and there was no camera at all. <laughs> and so uh, the thing is that media power, of course, has very strong influence on, on elections. And uh, in the United States, most of the media are corporations, which uh, don't work for the common good, but for private profit. And uh, so that's one factor, of course. But we have to acknowledge uh, at the same time that the Bernie Sanders campaign was something remarkable. I mean, Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist. I think he's not because it's a social democratic vision. But this seems so radical in the neoliberal United States that you have to call it socialism to be clear that it's not mainstream democratic uh, positions. But it's amazing that a candidate like that has reached such a level. And I think... The hope is that the movements that the Bernie Sanders campaign forged and that were uh, converging in the Bernie Sanders movement, that they will go on and that they will expand. It, it's about the climate movement. It's about Black Lives Matter. It's about the social justice movements and many more. And I think it, it will take time. And uh, of course, the political system is so rotten. I mean, the Congress is in, in large parts in the pocket of the fossil fuel industries and other industries in Wall Street, of course. Uh, but these things can be changed. They'll look at uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won in New York against a candidate with much more money and media coverage. So you can th change things. And uh, if... But the problem is, I would be hopeful if we had like 20 or 30 years to change things. But uh, with climate change, we don't have these this time. And so I think, of course, Joe Biden represents a mainstream democratic capitalist class. He represents the war machine. He represents the, the imprisonment system and so on. But uh, if Biden wins, there is at least some possibility to push him some meters in the right direction. And with Trump, there is no such possibility. So I don't think that this election doesn't mean anything. I think uh, uh, Biden is a very bad option, but he is a little bit less evil and he can be pushed a little bit. You know, my only fear with that, and, and this is just pessimistic me, is that if Joe Biden is elected, the Republicans will even go farther and farther and farther to the right, possibly stoking even more fascist sympathies in the country. And then in 2024, they'll have somebody who's even worse than Donald Trump as the possibility of the next president. And the Democrats may be, you know, unenthusiastic because of a lack of possible change put in place by Joe Biden. So do you think my, my worries are exaggerated that I shouldn't be as concerned about how far right the uh, Republican Party is going to go? Because at one point in your book, you talk about how, uh, you know, the way that people view this is that they think that when some sort of authoritarian or even fascistic government takes power, that's it. They're in power forever, that that's going to be somehow sustainable. So are my worries a little bit too worried? No, not at all. I recently had a conversation with uh, Noam Chomsky, and he clearly said, and he's not the only one, there are many people in the American military even, who say that uh, we could have a civil war if Trump loses the election, and if he refuses to leave office, there could be a really 
kind of civil war. Uh, and he, even if uh, Biden wins and will um, uh, enter the White House, they, there's, of course, a possibility that the Republican Party, which is not really a party, as, as Chomsky says, it's a, it's a kind of um, extreme sect. It's, not, uh, it's beyond the spectrum already. And we have to be aware that fascism, uh, in the 20s and 30s in Europe and in other parts of the world was a strategy to crush progressive movements and it was very effective. It crushed all the uh, all the progressive movements in Europe and uh, that was the aim and uh, among other aims. But as you rightfully say, fascism also is not eternal. It is not stable. So it was in Europe there for 20 years or so, in Spain a little longer, in Latin America it was also there for quite a long time, but uh, it is not eternal. The problem again is climate change and the other ecological devastations. If we have this, if this uh, right-wing surge will continue, then we have a little chance to prevent the planet from really going down the drain and then the conflicts will get, get much worse because the inhabitable parts of the planet will vanish one after the other and you will get more conflict. So it's a very important battle to stop this fascist surge and uh, I, I think don't think it's uh, hopeless. Um, but I think the main thing is that on the progressive side, movements converge and not work against each other. We are speaking with Fabian Scheidler, author of The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. In 2009, Fabian co-founded the independent newscast Context TV, which has since produced over 100 broadcasts on global justice issues. Context TV is an independent news magazine and provides background information on pressing current issues such as Social justice, climate change, war, and peace. Find out more about Context TV at kontext.tv.de. Follow Context TV on Twitter at Context TV. Again, that's Context with a K. You point out how governments can't reverse trends. Markets are devastating the planet. Yet the argument here in the States is always boiled down to who do you support in fixing all of our problems, ineffective government or destructive markets? Why does the argument always end up with government versus business? And more so, why can it not get beyond that dichotomy? Well, the thing is, as I said, that the modern state and the institutions of capital accumulation evolved in a co-evolutionary way. They are inseparable. And uh, you see that in the fact that most of the big corporations on the planet, I mean, the 500 biggest corporations on the planet control about 40% of the global economy and two-thirds of global trade. And those corporations cannot live without subsidies. Uh, the International Monetary Fund says that uh, taxpayers are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry by $5 trillion every year. So the taxpayer pays for the devastation of the planet and for these corporations. The same is true with the aviation industry. The same is true, of course, with Wall Street, with all the bailouts. They, they are living by state subsidies. And uh, the same is true for the car industry and many, many other industries. So uh, you see it's state capitalism. There was never 
in the history of this system a free market system. The parts of the system could be free markets, but the system only works if there is little competition on the top. If you have big corporations with crazy monopolies, like today Google, Amazon, and so on, Boeing, etc., uh, it doesn't work otherwise because the extreme accumulation of capital in few hands does not work if you have real competition in markets because the profits will go down if you have more competition. So it's about the competition of the workforce and of small business, but not at the top. And the, the point is when it comes down to whether the government or the market should fix it, uh, uh, the market is not a market. That's the first thing. And you, we cannot get rid of states and governments. It's utopian maybe in a hundred or two hundred or a thousand years. So we have to deal with governments and we have to change the behavior of governments and states. So instead of subsidizing all these corporations and the fossil fuel industry, the state should put the money into a eco, an ecological and social transformation, a transition. This is absolutely possible. And the new uh, deal shows that uh, Something like that happened, not in an ecological sense, but in a social sense. And we need absolutely a progressive Green New Deal, which has some post-capitalist elements. That means that it channels money to the ecological transition, but also to institutions, to economic institutions, which work for the common good, like cooperatives, like communal institutions, instead of corporations, instead of for profit institutions. So we need this kind of transition. We need to um, separate the state and the government from big capital, from the corporations. This is a big issue. And then a government, a state, can play a positive role in the transformation. You write who or what is actually standing in the way and why. Why is, that, why is it that a civilization that presents itself to the world as the bearer of reason and progress is incapable of changing direction from this obviously suicidal path. But Fabian, are, are we still that world that is the bearer of reason? Have we moved on to a world of affect, of emotion, leaving behind the world of reason? Well, the thing with uh, reason and civilization and all of this is that there's a lot of mythology and ideology surrounding it. I mean, we, we have to be clear that uh, colonization took place in the name of civilization. We have civilization and they are the savages. It took even in part uh, place in the name of reason. We have reason. We have enlightenment, but those savages don't. So you can turn things around in a very um, specific way. And I think uh, reason, the claim that our civilization is so reasonable that is, it is um, uh, the best one we can have, the most progressive one, uh, that's a mythology to legitimize the extreme violence that was perpetrated in the name of the elites of this system, of those running the system. And we see the irrationality of the system, which has been in place for 500 years. I mean, the endless accumulation of capital is in its core irrational because it's not a moral aim, it's not a social aim, it's not an ecological aim, it's an absurd accumulation of number of numbers on bank accounts, it's irrational. And this irrationality shows itself clearly in the fact that we know everything about climate change and the ecological devastation and we keep on uh, feeding those corporations and as uh, the uh, 
the chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change once put it on, on a climate summit. He says nobody of all these leaders and uh, heads of state here has any interest in science. They don't care for science. It's very clear. And uh, the most eminent climate scientists like Kevin Anderson, for example, say that we have to reduce climate gas emissions by 80% until 2030. We want to have a chance to stay below 2 degrees centigrade. And nobody cares for it in the European Union. Nobody cares for it. There, there are no targets which are even in a remote way in line with the 2 degree target or even the 1.5 degree target which was mentioned in the Paris Agreement. So it's, complete, it's, it's irrational and it's just a mask of rationality which is held up to legitimize the violence and the accumulation and the privileges. You write that the violent expansion of the system and the injustices it inevitably produced were justified from the outset by the claim that the West was undertaking a historical mission that would bring salvation to the world. But doesn't everybody view the world that way, wanting to impose their form of salvation on the rest of us globally, whether it's the West or the East? We're told here in the States the Muslim world wants a global caliphate, that communists want their project to go global. Now it's China that is a threat to global domination. So is any Western arrogance that it can save the world all that unique? No, it's not unique, but it's very special. And we have to be clear that the Western system, the capitalist system, the mega machine, has been the most violent system in human history. It has been the, the, the system which has expanded in a way which China never did. Uh, China, for example, in the 15th, 16th and even 17th century was far superior to the West in terms of, um, of technology. Uh, they had firearms from the 11th century on. Um, they had a fleet which was ex superior to all European fleets. Uh, the, their science, everything was completely superior. They, the, the, their production system and everything. But they didn't use it to colonize other countries. They colonized some parts of you know, Asia, or, and but they didn't colonize the world, even though they had they were able to. Um, and the reason is that in China has a completely different relation of state and capital. There were capitalists in China even in those days, but the state didn't um, uh, merge with the capitalist class. They, the state managed to keep the capitalist class at bay, and they even destroyed their fleet in the early 16th century when the emperor had the impression that the traders got uh, too powerful. And they, the way China works today, I don't want to idealize China. There, there, is a, um, uh, there are a lot of things which are unacceptable for me. It's authoritarian and so on. But in terms of foreign policy, I think China will not go the aggressive way that the West did. And for example, the new Silk Road uh, is an example of that. Also, I don't want to idealize it. It uh, has ecological impacts, which are very bad and so on. But uh, it tries to uh, to uh, it tries not to go into a military confrontation with the United States. And the United States has a, a couple of hundreds military by bases around China. It's really a threat. And China has the memory uh, 
from the 19th century that the Britain that Britain really destroyed the country in the opium wars and they want to um, avoid the situation by all means they want to avoid a military confrontation and so they try to build a land bridge to Europe and I think uh, we will see that the decline of the United States will lead to a new world order which uh, hopefully will not go through another big war like the first world war and the second world war and this one would be would destroy humanity because it could be a nuclear war so it's an extremely important question how a new world order can be created with not a new hegemon with not with china as the new hegemon but as a um a system with uh, multiple players and a different order. And I think the, it's inevitable that this will happen. It can take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or even 40 years. I don't think it will take that long. But uh, we have to work towards another international order, which is built on the protection of the planet, which is built on mutual respect of the nations, and which is built also on the rights of climate refugees and other refugees to find a safe harbor when their countries are destroyed by climate havoc. You write about the shortcomings of capitalism when it comes to linear thinking. You write pandemics are an example of the short-sightedness of linear thinking, which is based on the misconception that the living world can be controlled by linear cause and effect chains, that is, by the exercise of power through the pattern of command and obedience. But natural systems cannot be controlled and regulated like technical machines. They react like the Hydra and the Heracles saga. For every head cut off, many more grow back. Everything that lives is based on nonlinear circular processes in which every effect is at the same time the cause of countless other processes, most of which are incalculable. Does capitalism believe it understands nature, but does not, and its alleged unintentional consequences are caused by its lack of understanding of how nature works? Does capitalism not understand nature, or does it not care? I mean, capitalism is not a being, so it cannot understand something. It's, uh, humans can understand th something or not. Um, but uh, the thing is that, of course, the capitalist system ignores nature because its only interest is to um, turn nature into commodities and so to control nature. And we see the effects of uh, this ideology that nature only serves as a basis to produce commodities and to produce money. Um, the, the core of the pandemics that we see in the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, is that the expansion of the economic system destroys habitats of wild animals. And as I said, the, these wild animals come to human settlements, the excrements come into the chain of um, uh, of our food system and so we get those viruses and it's like the, the myth of the hydro you try to combat nature you cut the forests and in the end you will get effects that are uh, not foreseeable and which can be deadly and the same is true with uh, climate change uh, I mean uh, it was not foreseen when fossil fuels were used on a large scale in the 19th century and now we have this situation where extremely complex and non-linear systems because climate systems are non-linear they reach tipping points and then uh, there are points of no return when the permafrost in, in the Arctic will melt uh, when the Amazon Amazon forest will break down and so on and um, 
there's also this idea that we could geoengineer us out of the climate crisis, and it's uh, exactly the same idea that we control a complex system, which is the atmosphere of the planet. But this is impossible. There were attempts to do this, uh, for example, by uh, putting large amounts of sulfur into the atmosphere to block sunlight. But uh, we know that the monsoon, for example, could uh, then uh, move from India and East Africa to other regions, and that would cause the death of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, um, because it's a complex system. And so I think the it's not only uh, capitalists who think that way. It was also Russian authoritarian socialism, which uh, under Stalin, which tried to convert uh, Russia and the Soviet Union into a paradise of engineers who controlled all the rivers and so on. It was devastating for the natural systems of, the, of the, this part of the world. So I think we have to learn not to... Uh, command not to control natural systems but to cooperate with them uh, nature is uh, other than the, the classical Darwinian uh, narrative is not only based on competition uh, but it's very, to a large extent based on corporations and humans are no exception so there are many examples of how humans can cooperate with living systems without destroying them And uh, but for this we have to move beyond um, a relation to nature, which only sees as, uh, is, uh, it as a possible commodity. You write that the corona crisis has further exacerbated extreme social inequality, both within most countries and between rich and poor nations. While corporations were pr provided with generous rescue packages and the upper classes with their financial cushions were not existentially affected by the shutdown, millions of poor people, whether in India, Southern Europe, or the U.S., were struggling to survive. But we're told, Fabian, this is done because they are the job creators. And without big wealth, big wealthy corporations, there are no jobs. So is our choice, to what degree is our choice, being bailed out instead of corporations, but losing our livelihoods? No, this is not the case. Uh, corporations destroy more jobs than they create effectively. Uh, look at Google. Look at Apple. I mean, how many people do these companies employ? I mean, they have huge turnovers in terms of uh, money and in terms of um, um, their wealth, but they employ very little people, and that becomes more and more a key problem. And what is called technological progress very often is used by these corporations to replace people by machines because it's cheaper to employ machines. But this creates a problem for the capitalist system because machines don't buy anything. So you have really a problem of demand in the system. And this is at the core also of the financial crisis, which we have increasingly, uh, that uh, people don't have the money anymore, don't have the jobs anymore to buy up this huge production of goods and services that, that has to grow in the logic of the system. And to give you one example of how corporations destroy jobs instead of creating them. Here in Berlin, where I live, there are a huge number of shopping centers built, and there are only corporations in these shopping centers uh, for whatever you buy. Um, and uh, these shopping centers destroy small business, and small business employ more people. And small business also keep the money within the cycle of the city. For example, if a family business, uh, if they earn money, 
they will spend the money in the city. They will uh, go out eating for for uh, uh, for dinner. They they will spend the money in the city. But if you give the money to a corporation instead, to Starbucks or whatever, instead of a cafe that is run by a family, Starbucks will take the money to tax havens and uh, will put it into the financial markets. So the money is gone from the local system. So in in two aspects. First, by um, uh, replacing people by machines and then by taking the money out of the local system and putting it into the financial market where it is completely useless, it produces only more crises. By these two mechanisms, corporations destroy jobs. And if you put the public money not in the corporations, but in small business and cooperatives, and so you would create a a lot more jobs and decent jobs and jobs which make sense which really uh, have a meaning because they are part of an ecological transition. And for example, David Graeber has written a book about bullshit jobs. How many of these great jobs that the corporations create are just bullshit jobs? And uh, so I think we have to completely think about labor and jobs in a new way and get the corporations out of the way. And listeners can hear our interview with David, the late, great David Graeber, on his book, Bullshit Jobs, by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on David's name. Uh, Fabian, you write, if it becomes apparent that this supposedly rational civilization is completely blind to the most important information essential for survival, then the governors of this... uh system face a serious dilemma. Either they have to attack the sciences head-on and deny their findings, thus exposing rationality, one of the foundations of this civilization, as a myth. But should we be hoping for the foundations of civilization to be revealed as myth, as fiction, when we consider Western civilization's global devastation? Well, I think we have to be... uh... We have to look at the truth of Western civilization as the most violent system in human history. And no other civilization has reached a point where we have multiple um, possibilities to destroy life on Earth. We have nuclear war, we have climate havoc and other possibilities. So we have to face the destructiveness of the system. And then we have to look at what kind of rationality we really want to have. For me, rational behavior is a behavior that allows for um, survival in the long term for humanity. And so we need a different system for that. And um, uh, the the point is that there's hardly in the mainstream media and in the, the political arena a serious debate, and this is part of the irrationality of the system. Uh, I mean, if we are facing extinction, and when we face extinction, we should be able to discuss the foundations of our civilization, but this is not taking place. Um, And we are ignoring science, and this is what Fridays for Future and Greta Thunberg is about. They just say, look at science, and then act according to science. But of course, Governments have a hard time doing that because if they did, they would really have to crush the profits of corporations. They would really have to go after the private interests. And in the long run, they would have to change the system. And uh, of course, they don't want to. They are not paid to do so if they are in the pockets of the corporations. So, uh, yeah, but we have I think we need a public debate about these issues. And I think it is coming back. The Bernie Sanders campaign is an example that systemic issues 
are addressed now and young people really are fed up with the system. They are looking for alternatives and I think we have to provide uh, the forums and rooms for this debate about uh, transition to a different system. Fabian, we could talk about this for another hour. I have about 75 more questions that I've pre-written <laughs> for you to talk to you about this book. This is an outstanding work. We have been speaking with writer for print media, television, theater, and opera, Fabian Scheidler, author of The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. He founded Context TV, and you can find Context TV online at K-O-N-T-E-X-T. XT-TV.DE and you can follow Context TV on Twitter at Context TV and you can find out more about Fabian at his own website FabianScheidler.com One last question for you and the way that we end all of our interviews is the same way. We ask each and every one of our guests the question from hell the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. You were just talking about, hope, uh, hopefully, a better public debate coming back, coming about. Tonight, we're having uh, a stupid presidential debate here in the United States, which is going to be nauseating on every level. But the way it's being framed right now is our future is, from the perspective of those who are Democrats, fascism under Trump, or from the perspective of Republicans, Marxism under Joe Biden is our future either fascism or Marxism. No, I think that's a ridiculous framing. Uh, I mean, fascism is real. Fascism, fascism is coming back, and uh, Trump is representing it. Uh, of course, the mainstream Democratic Party has nothing to do with Marxism at all. It's uh, just a different variety of capitalism. And uh, the real question we face is uh, whether we uh, can build up different structures where Marxist analysis have been very important. He was the first one to really understand the capitalist system. The answers he had were not that convincing all the time. So, and we are more than 150 years later. So we have to find new answers, especially to the ecological crisis. And we have to go beyond this paradigm of growth and economic expansion. And I think um, there are a lot of good ideas and there are a lot of really good examples in practice of how a different system can operate. But of course, on a large scale, this is much more difficult. And I think we will face a very harsh phase of transition for many decades. And we will have more crises, like the financial crisis, like the corona crisis, like climate havoc. And in each of these crises, we will face bifurcations. We will face the possibility to go one way or another. For example, to put public money instead of bailing out Wall Street, Boeing and fossil fuel industry, instead of putting the money into an ecological and social transition. And if movements are prepared and if movements are prepared for the next crisis, then we can avoid the next shock, shock doctrine, as Naomi Klein puts it, and to have a, like, a shock doctrine from the progressive side to change things radically in the next crisis. I think in the corona crisis this was, um, uh, has not happened, but there will be other crises, and we, we have other choices than, the problem, than this fake public debate uh, tries to tell us. 
Fabian, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. This really was an honor, and your writing is absolutely fantastic. People can find out more about your book, The End of the Mega Machine, by going to megamachine.org. That's, there's an S before the C in megamachine.org. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. The URL is www.and-of-the-megamachine-in-english.com. Uh, hyphen, hyphen, oh, okay. So it's easier. Uh, yeah, it's easier. All right, so I just have to put in the end of the mega machine with dash with dots in between, and they'll find it easily. I appreciate that. You yeah. can also find out more about Context TV at context-tv.de, and you can follow them on Twitter at Context TV, and you can find out more about Fabian at FabianScheidler.com. This, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being on our show, and if you don't mind, we'll be annoying you in the future to have you back on our show. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, take care. Should we take that as a, a yes or no? I'm not too sure there. Uh, okay, money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This week's question from Al is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Al by... Posting it on our Facebook page, tweeting it to us, uh, emailing it to us, but you got to have your response in by the end of the show Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner of the new Gray on Black This Is Hell Trucker's Cap. Richard, how are listeners answering this week's question from hell? Oh, boy. we got some answers. <laughs> All right. What can I say to get you? Uh, what is it again? It's... Uh, what is at the bottom of your downward spiral? There you go. All right, so Addy S. says, mm-hmm. sorry, I got my mic on the wrong side of my situation. Here. <laughs> Your situation. <laughs> um, Addy S. says, binging on 15 tacos and double fisting <laughs> coffee and wine. Nice. Kyle J. says, a pointless orgy of violence triggered by hearing high hopes over the Muzak system <laughs> in a department store. Ugh. Nick E says the entrance to the tunnel of love. <laughs> Austin H says some sort of padding, hopefully. <laughs> Mike M says a high paying corporate position that feels rewarding to me personally and treats me well enough that I don't care to notice the damage I'm doing. <laughs> so this week's question mail is, what's at the bottom of your downward spiral? What's at the bottom of your downward spiral? Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can go find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Richard, when are you going to be in here again producing the show? Yeah, we were. I was just talking with Alex. We're probably going to set up a one-day-a-week uh, situation, depending on his needs. I, I'm really going to leave it up to him to schedule me as as he needs time off. So Yeah, because his kid comes first. That's our priority. <laughs> All right, Richard, I will be talking to you very soon. We will have more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of the trucker's cap by going on Thursday at the end of the show. We are also looking for new volunteer board operators like... Richard Norwood to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, all you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com. 
www.thepositionmanagement.com. The position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in I, mind I get as well. a stipend? Yes, you will be getting a stipend. <laughs> hey, you got part of it today. We gave you that down payment by giving you a This Is Hell <laughs> face mask. That's only to keep you alive so you can come up here and produce the show. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one to two, three, four, five times a week. Who knows? One, two, three, four, five times a month. Whatever, it works out. But you would have to be here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 every morning. So we are looking for people who are in the Chicago area. But we are going to have other work that people can contribute to the radio show uh, in a way, in a remote way. So we'll be doing that as well. We're making a call out for those people as well. We've already got some people are responding. Daphne emailed us and asked, hi, could you need help running the board either Mondays or Thursdays? Monday I could start next week. Thursdays I could start November. That was so specific that Alex will be training (laughs) Daphne uh, next Monday. And if you've asked about running the board, Alex will be scheduling a time to get you trained up as well. Todd wants to help, too, writing Chuck and Alex. I'm responding to the call to help the show remotely. I hope I can do this work during my normal working hours, thus getting paid by my employer to do your bidding. I won't tell if you won't. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Todd. Your secret's safe with us, Todd, and we don't mind your double dipping. And Jordan wants to help out remotely as well, writing, Hey, Chuck, my name's Jordan, and I have been a pretty dedicated listener of This Is Hell since I was a young teenager. So I think that's 13 or 14. That's about as young as you can get with a teenager. Eighth or ninth grade. I've always wanted to reach out just to say thank you for all the work you and the crew do, but I often default to being more of a lurker. (laughs) That is until I heard about the remote work possibility. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now, but I have experience with tech stuff, worked as a stagehand to pay for college, and now I work as a network technician. I am also somewhat comfortable with Squarespace, WordPress, and general front-end website work. I would love to learn more about anything I can do to be a more active listener and help This Is Hell remotely. Thank you so much. Take care and stay safe. Jordan, Todd, and everybody, we will be contacting you very soon about exactly what the remote work is. And if you are in the Chicago area and interested in being a board operator here on This Is Hell, email us, chuck at thisishell.com on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. We will be speaking with Nick Dearden, Director of Global Justice Now, which is a democratic social justice organization working as part of a global movement to challenge the powerful and create a more just and equal world. Good luck with that, Nick. Nick will be on to discuss his writing at opendemocracy.net. We must defeat the U.S. trade deal. Food standards, the price of medicine, and climate action are on the slab in the biggest assault on Britain's sovereignty in world history. The article is an excerpt from Nick's book, Trade Secrets, the truth about the U.S. trade deal and how we can stop it, which you can read for free at tradesecrets.globaljustice.org.uk. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, thank you so much for coming up and producing today's show. You're welcome, sir. And thanks to Fabian Scheidler, this week's guest, or today's guest, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>